We're in Acts 21 today. And what I want to do is just, I kind of want to just dive right into it. And um, we'll kind of, you know, go just go through the historical, you know, chronological aspects of it. And then after we're done, if we have time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to touch on some points that we can glean from the text. Because we're in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. He's at the tail end of it. And what he wants to do is he wants to go to Jerusalem. And so in one sense, if I can just compare it to this, you guys, there was a time when Jesus reached a point in his ministry where he had to go to Jerusalem to die. And everybody was telling him, don't go, don't go, you know, his disciples and others. But, you know, he had to. That was his calling. It was now a time where he would suffer and, and then die. And, and the same is true for Paul. You know, this is now a time where he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and then eventually he's going to die as well. And, and in one sense, we're all called to do that. You know, when you were called as a Christian, Jesus didn't say, come on, let's have a good time. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross. And, and that's what we need to do. It's a call to die to self. It's a call to do his will. And we see this here. It's kind of cool the way it's symbolized in this section. Notice what we read here in Acts 21. As Paul is now heading back to Jerusalem, it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And so what you find here is Paul is determined to go to uh, Jerusalem by the feast day. As a matter of fact, if you would, go back to Acts chapter 20 and look at verse 16. Remember when Paul was there, he met with the elders in Miletus, and we read in verse 16, Acts 20, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so, you know, he's determined to, to go to Jerusalem. We, we see him traveling through all these cities on the way to Jerusalem, Kos and Rhodes and Patara. And then rather than sailing on a ship that stops at every city, what he did was he found a ship that would set a straight course to Phoenicia, about a 400-mile journey. It would be kind of like saying, okay, I'm not going to take the metro anymore. I'm going to take the Greyhound or whatever. I'm going to go, you know, the one that goes long distance. Why? Because he wants to get there as soon as possible. And so by God's grace, they experience uh, uh, traveling mercies and they make it to Tyre. Notice again, it says in verse 3, for there they were to unload her cargo. And most of you probably know what they unloaded in Tyre. The cargo was tires. Most of you guys know that, right? No, you're probably tired of that joke. But um, notice what we read next in verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. 
You know, they, they knew. They mean, they, he, it's interesting that the Greek word says he was searching for disciples. He, he found some. And when they got together, they got to know each other. And when they got to know each other, when they found out what was going on, this guy's going to Jerusalem. The Spirit told them, he, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. And so they told him, don't go. And we're going to see a, a bigger picture of this later and exactly how it all went down. They knew through the Spirit Paul would suffer in Jerusalem. It was a divine revelation of the Holy Spirit. You know, so they kind of tell him, don't go. You know, we read something similar back in Acts 20. Look at verse 23. This is really what was going on in every city. Paul said that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. And so the Spirit was revealing this to the people in every city Paul visited. The saints didn't want to see him suffer. They wanted to protect him, and they so told him not to go. You know, it was a heavy revelation. And so what do you do, man, in a situation like that? You know, they tell you, hey, if you go down this street, they're going to pick you up. They're going to, th- they're going to lock you up. And you're going to suffer. You're not going to go into a justice system like, you know, we have today. I mean, I mean what do you do? And we're going to see at the end of the day, the key to life is the will of the Lord. You know, it's not my life. You know, I was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. I belong to him. You know, it's a frustrating thing when sometimes you see even in the church, people are so concerned with their own safety or their own comfort and not their own calling. You know, here Paul, he's, he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's bound in the Spirit. It says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, and all these nice saints, I mean, they're, they're cool people. You know, they, they love Paul, but man, you got to be so careful that you don't give people bad counsel because you're so concerned about their safety. The most important thing is that we're in the will of God. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, here's one thing you do. Uh, look at verse 5. It says, And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. That's what we do. You know, it was the, the last day in the city of Tyre. They knew his destination. They had the revelation. And so they took time for invocation, which means they called upon God. It's a reference to prayer. And it's so cool. I don't know if you can visualize it there, but they go out of the city. It's not probably a real easy walk, you know, but the, the husbands and the wives and the kids, they all go out of the city and, you know, they all just kind of get there on their knees and they, it says, pray to the Lord. You know, we read something similar again. If you would go back to Acts chapter 20, notice what we read in verse 36. And when we had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. You know, that was in Miletus. It was with the elders of the church. But now they're really desperate and they got the wives and the kids joining them, doing the same thing, kneeling down and praying. You know, one of the things, uh, I've been doing this more and more with the guys, uh, uh, you know, behind the scenes, you know, but... I remember one of the first time we prayed with some of the brothers. They're coming from Africa. There's a school right here, 
and not too far, International Theological Seminary, and every once in a while we're blessed to have these guys come and visit us. And, and every time I pray with them, they always get on their knees. It's, it's really cool, you know. And I know it's not necessarily the position of physical you know, stature, it's the stature of the heart, but there's something about getting on your knees and praying. And there's also something about getting the kids to pray. Whenever I'm desperate, no offense, old, uh, old people, but I, I ask the kids, man. Because doesn't the Bible talk about uh, we need to have like the faith of a child? Not a childish faith, but a childlike faith because kids believe. And so here they have, you know, the wives and the husbands and the kids and they all kneel down and, and they pray. This whole journey to Jerusalem was bathed in prayer. There's no doubt in my mind that every city they stopped in, they dropped to their knees and they prayed. Adoration, invocation, because of the destination that was not to be taken lightly. Paul had even asked for prayer. It's interesting, earlier from the church in Rome, you guys remember he wrote a letter to the Romans from Corinth. We studied this as we've gone through the book of Acts, and that was the tail end of the third missionary journey. So it was just months earlier, he wrote him a letter. And in Acts chapter 15 and verse 30, he said, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So, so as he's going to Jerusalem, he's not doing it flippantly. He's doing it prayerfully, and he's asking them, I beg you, strive together with me in prayers for me. I know God's called me to Jerusalem, but maybe he'll have mercy and keep me. I don't know, but I'm just asking for prayer, asking for prayer, asking for prayer, getting on our knees for prayer. And that's the life that we have to live as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to me, it's just important to know that the situation did not lack invocation that this mission had been bathed in prayer and brought before god and this is part of the reason i believe paul was in the will of god because he brought it in prayer to god he had different flocks and churches in different cities leaders singles husbands wives children you know i think it's important for us to make sure that we bathe these things in prayer you guys remember that hymn what a friend we have in jesus Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If I know that I've bathed something in prayer, that I've brought someone to God in prayer, it's then I have a peace about things. But if I haven't, and you know the difference when you haven't, you talk about prayer, you teach prayer, you say you're going to pray, but you don't pray, you know the difference then you don't have a peace there. But when you've really given it to God, it's a different life. And so in verse 6, it says, When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters 
who prophesied. And so, you know, Luke is just giving us the information as he's journeyed to Jerusalem, but it all has meaning, it all has significance, and there's so much that we can glean about, you know, how the church did it, how Paul did it, how Jesus did it, how Jesus built his church. You know, and Paul and the team, they're traveling from Tyre to Ptolemy to Caesarea. Um, how many of you guys went to Israel with us? Some of you are here that went to Israel. Remember we went to Caesarea? Beautiful port city. This last time, you know, where they would do the horse races, the, the amphitheater, the buildings. I mean, if you uh, went, you would remember that. If you read the book of Acts, you would remember this guy, Philip. He was one of the seven deacons chosen by God in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, and then used by God in a mighty way. He started a church in Samaria. God did a great work there. Then God called him to desert, and he used him to witness, if you remember, in Acts chapter 8 to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, next thing you know, he settles down in this city called uh, Caesarea, and he became a full-on family man. He was still an evangelist, but now he's got these four daughters who prophesy. And it's interesting, when you read the text right here, I don't know if you guys can read between the lines. Can you guys do that? Put your spiritual glasses on, read between the lines. What caused Philip to go to Samaria? It was a persecution of the church that scattered them out of Jerusalem. Well, what, who, who spearheaded the persecution of the church? Well, Paul did. Paul did, you remember? And, and when you read the whole story there, Paul was the one that was holding the coats. Paul was the one that was voting for the death of Stephen. And what ends up happening? You know, now Paul is the guy here who, who killed Philip's, you know, one of his co-laborers in Christ, undoubtedly a good friend of his. He killed him. You know, he's the one that persecuted the church and scattered the church and you know, Philip knew all about that. Here's the, the guy who was responsible for all that coming and knocking at his door saying, can I stay at your house? And Philip opens up his doors and opens up his heart wide. Why? Because he had forgiven. You know, and there's a lot of lessons here we learn about the church. You know, we know when you look at this, the history of what took place, and we know there's a lesson here as we read between the lines of forgiveness. You know, I was reminded of the story of Cory Ten Boone. You guys remember her? Uh, she was arrested uh, for hiding Dutch Jews from the Nazis, and she was thrown into a concentration camp. Uh, thank God she survived, and her sister died, and her sister said, I want you to tell the story to the to the whole world. And for the next 30 years, Corrie Ten Boone traveled the world telling the story about love and forgiveness made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in 1947, she was put to the test while speaking in a church. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her, and Corrie froze. Because she knew who the man was, he'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, one who had mocked the woman as they showered. It, it, it all came back to her, she said, with a rush, the huge room, its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now, here he is at the church, pushing out his hand to shake hers. And saying a fine message 
fine message, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And so when this was happening, she said that she fumbled in her pocketbook rather than taking his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How would he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? He would not remember me. I could put my hand in my pocketbook and keep it there, but she said, I remember him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt, I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand went out to her. Will you forgive me? And, and she said, I, I stood there. I whose sins again and again had to be forgiven could not forgive. Betsy, my sister, died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? And the soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. And she wrestled with the most difficult thing she had ever had to do. But she said, I had to do it. I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. And so standing there before the former guard, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. And so she prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And Corey thrust out her hand. And she wrote in her book, as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down from my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being and it brought tears to my eyes. And the words came out of her lips, I forgive you, my brother, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I tried and did not have the power because it's the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, and I can tell you story after story. Another story that comes to mind is uh, Minkaye. He is a... a, one of the savages from the Alca Indian tribes in the jungles of Ecuador. And you might remember the story in 1956 where five American missionaries were speared to death. One of them, a, a man, a young man, brilliant young college graduate, Ivy School graduate named Nate Saint, who was spearheaded by Minkaye. And, and what ends up happening is, you know, his... You know, Aunt Rachel goes and ministers to the tribe, you know, and you guys remember Elizabeth Elliot and others, they go and they minister to these savages after they killed these five men. And then eventually one day, Nate's saint son, his name is Steve Saint, he comes and he meets the killer of his father face to face, Minkaye. And they establish such a beautiful relationship that he then refers to him as his father. 
You see, God can do these things. Here's Philip with with Paul and his house, the one who had killed his friend Stephen, the one who had caused the scattering of the church. Think about that. The whole church gets scattered. That's the guy who caused it. Well, here he is staying in his house. See, when you read these things and you look at the early church and the power they had, of the Holy Spirit to do these things. And you realize, man, this is a lot different probably than our church nowadays. And this is what we got to get back to. Philip was a great evangelist. He he was a a great forgiver. And I have a hunch he was also a great father. Notice again there in verse 9, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. You know, back then, the fact that they were virgins is simply synonymous with the fact that they were unmarried. And Luke seems to highlight this. And we're not sure why he wants to highlight the fact that they're unmarried. You know, maybe that means that they were young. And so, you know, it's kind of cool when young people serve the Lord like that. When young people prophesy. When young women prophesy. Maybe he wanted to highlight that. It may also be that not only did they have the the gift of prophecy, maybe they had the gift of singleness. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7.7. Or maybe they chose to stay single. A lot of times you got girls and young guys and all they want to do is get married. And here's an example of young women, unmarried, serving the Lord. They prophesied. Jesus talked about people like that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, you know. So, you know, to be unmarried or or celibate, it's not mandated, but here it's validated by Luke in God's word. And these daughters of Philip, they prophesied. Now, to prophesy is interesting. That means to foretell or foretell God's word. And I just really make sure, I want to make sure you guys know, we know as a church, it is perfectly biblical for a sister, for a woman uh, to prophesy. You know, Peter on the day of Pentecost, he explained the fact that these ladies are speaking in tongues because it's biblical. It's in Joel 2.28. He quotes it in Acts 2 verse 17. It came to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You know, Paul spoke about this because even on the first day of the church, the very first day, so to speak, the day of Pentecost, the sisters were speaking in tongues the marvelous works of God. Paul writes about sisters prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11.5. And I personally, I can't tell you how many times sisters have prophesied over my life and into my life. It's an important part of the church. And so we see in this section how huge prophecy was to the early church you know, and you're wondering, what is prophecy? Is it weird? You know, it's not weird, and it's needed. To put in a nutshell, what prophecy is, is simply speaking a message from God. Now, of course, we test the spirits, and we test what anyone says by the word of God, but we, it says in First Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, don't think little of them, no, test them. Right to make sure that they line up with the word, but it's so important as a church. We see it here. Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. 
And so, you guys, this is what the church was. We see more prophecy in verse 10. Notice what it says, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So you see more prophecy. I mean, it was prophecy in every city. Now you got this guy Agabus, and last time we saw him was back in Acts eleven twenty-eight. Remember the, one of them, the Agabus, he stood up. And in Acts eleven twenty-eight, it's interesting. I encourage you when you get a chance, check it out. It says, and he showed by the Spirit. He didn't just speak it. He showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. Now it's interesting. Even then, 12 years earlier, he showed by the Spirit the prophecy. He was kind of a visual communicator. And you guys know how some prophets were like that, right? They would speak visually. Uh, and this prophecy came true back about the future and uh, the famine. And now he has another revelation for Paul and all the Christians who were present that day in the city of Caesarea. And what he does, you guys, you know, I mean, you can visualize it. He takes his belt, he binds his hands and his feet, and he shares the prophecy. He said, so shall the Jews bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so the Jews would be responsible for Paul's arrest, but ultimately he'd end up in the hands of the Romans. And it's interesting, you know, there's a lot here, you guys. Um, you guys have ever heard that saying, the Bible's so deep that theologians will never touch the bottom? It's deep, man. You know, and you might even wonder, well, what is this thing? I don't want to read too much into it, but Agabus seems to emphasize the fact that it would be his own belt. The owner of this belt. Well, why didn't he take his own belt? Why did it have to be Paul's belt? Because there's a message there, right? In one sense, he's doing it to himself. It was as if Paul was, you know, walking straight into the prison. He was doing it to himself as with his own belt. But he wasn't afraid. The prison? Oh, been there. <laughs> Done that. I, I wasn't easy. But if that's where Jesus is calling me, that's where I will go. And I won't hesitate to obey him. You know, another detail we see here is that his hands and feet would be bound. And no doubt this was literal, but it was also symbolic because, you know, for a season his feet would not take him the way they had in the past. And, you know, his hands would be bound, no longer working as freely as he had in the past. And so Agabus gives the prophecy Everybody, you know, they, they react. Notice in verse 12, Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Notice in verse 12 the word we. That means Luke was saying it too. Luke, I mean, all, everybody's saying, Paul, don't go. They pleaded with him. Their opposition is interesting. It didn't lack love. It's not that they didn't care about him or weren't concerned for him. But, but at the same time, it, it could have been used to misguide him or to steer him the wrong way. They were begging him not to go, but he was already bound in the Spirit. And there's a lot of parallels here, but it kind of reminds me of when Jesus was going to go to the cross. And what did Peter do? He said, not so, Lord. And he rebuked him. 
It'll never happen to you, right? Matthew 16, 21 through 23, as Jesus is telling his disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and all these things, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter meant well. He loved the Lord, but he was not a man of prayer. He was not sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He was not strong. And so Satan got a hold of him and Satan spoke through him. And Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And isn't that our problem so many times? That at the end of the day, the reason why our life is not really lived fully for the Lord is because we're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So they're, you know, it's interesting. They're just telling him, don't, don't go. But Paul's response in verse 13, he answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. You know, as we come now to the last part of the message, I, I want to actually briefly elaborate on what we've studied so far. I want to give you guys some points, and then we're going to close it up with the climax of what Paul shares right here. You know, there's a lot to glean from this section, but if you're taking notes, maybe write down these things. You know, as, as you're on your way to Jerusalem, as you're on your way to, you know, answer the call, to die to self, number one is the importance of hospitality. Because everywhere Paul went, they, they, they brought him in. Hey, stay with us one day, seven days, a few days. That would be very helpful for Paul. Number two is the importance of prayer. And we saw how they got on their knees. And we even saw how Paul asked for prayer from different churches. I mean, how important that is. Number three, the importance of prophecy. You know, don't think that with some gift in the past, I get so upset at these so-called, you know, Bible teachers. They're, they're cessationists. They don't believe the gifts are for today. That's a, a lie from the devil himself. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Number four is the importance of forgiveness. God's not going to work in your life the way he wants to if you won't forgive. Number five, the importance of being spirit-led. And now we get to what we're at now. Because, you know, you could be led by man. You could be led by yourself. You could be led by what the church is telling you to do. And there might be times where someone, well-meaning, loving, caring, concerning Christian, is trying to steer you the wrong way. That's why it's so important that you get on your knees and you ask God himself for marching orders. When we talk about Christianity being a personal relationship, we're not exaggerating. It is a very personal relationship with God. And the whole church is telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, but God's telling him to go. It's imperative that we're spirit-led. And then the next thing is the importance of being ready. Right, right here, Paul says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready. Are you ready? Are you, or, or if something happens to you, you get blindsided. Are you going to get knocked out? No, I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready. This is important. 
I am ready to die. Are you ready to die? Now, I'm afraid if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you're not ready to die. You'll die in your sins and go to hell. You know what? You have to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can't just go to church and think that you're all right. That's not how you get to heaven. You have to humble yourself and you have to receive Jesus. He died on a cross, rose again. He has to be the Lord of your life, believing in him. Are you ready to die? Number one, you know, just are you saved? But number two, are you ready to die as a Christian? If God were to take your life today, would you be ashamed of the way you've been living your life? Are you ready? Paul said, I'm ready to suffer. And I'm ready to die. We need to be ready. Living every moment. And we talk about this all the time at my house. You know, and you can ask my wife, my kids. My kids are probably tired of it. But man, we tell them every day is a gift. We don't know if we have tomorrow. Are you ready? Paul said, I'm ready. I'm ready to suffer. I'm ready to die. For what? For, for what? Notice right here the importance of the name of the Lord. I, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem. For what? For the name. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's why it's important. We don't just speak a generic message. God bless you. I mean, that's okay, but... You guys know as well as I do that that doesn't carry the same weight as it, as it would if you say, Jesus, Jesus loves you. Jesus died on a cross for you. Acts 4.12, it's through his name that we're saved. Don't be afraid. Don't compromise. There is power in the name. of Jesus. And when you go through the book of Acts, you realize that's the one name they don't want you to talk about. And they forbid, them. Don't we, didn't we forbid you not to preach or teach in that name? And then Paul and Peter, these guys, Acts 5, 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. I'm ready to suffer, and I'm ready to be ostracized, and I'm ready for people to come against me. I'm ready for people to dislike me. I'm okay for the, I'm ready to suffer for the name. And I'm ready to die for his name. You see, these are the important things. The importance of the name of the Lord. And then lastly is the importance of the will of the Lord. And we see that there in verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And ultimately, that, that's, isn't that our life, you guys? The will of the Lord you know, I mean, I kind of hesitate to bring this up, and I probably shouldn't, but you know, the Dodgers. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, why does it hurt so bad, you know? <laughs> I'm serious. And I, I'm like, this is wrong, Lord. I'm a spiritual man, and um, it hurts. And so I asked the Lord, and the Lord said, well, I want you to just kind of go through it, because a lot of the people in the church are going through it. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to feel their pain. I said, okay, Lord, but this is so tough. But at the end of the day, it's the will of the Lord. Huh? Whatever he wants. I mean, make it come back. I mean, it's not over yet. <laughs> but pretty much. <laughs> 
But that's our life, and of course, in those things, in, in the bigger things. I just pray, you know, because there's a lot of parallels here between Paul and Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was the last thing he wrestled with. Not my will, but thy will be done, huh? So let me close with this, because I think that the problem with the church today, a lot of times, is that's not where they're at. They're not really living their life you know, uh, uh, the will of the Lord be done. You know, what a difference a comma makes. I was reading this, John Corson mentioned it in his commentary, and he said this, he says, it was not until after he had sent his wife on a buying spree to Europe that the financial empire of millionaire John Astor began to crumble. Unaware of her husband's financial crisis, Lady Astor tracked down one of the most expensive pieces of jewelry in the world and sent a wire to her husband telling him what a treasure it would be to own. So here's this millionaire. He loses his money. I mean, it's not looking good. This is back before the days of telephones. And so, you know, she sends a telegram to him and about, about the jewelry. And, and so what, it, what she asked was, uh, is it okay? We, when he saw the price of $250,000, Astor wired back immediately, no, price too high. Unfortunately, the cable operator forgot the comma. So when Lady Astor got the cable, she read, no price too high. <laughs> and she happily purchased the diamond. And you, you know, you look at that, I think we have a graphic of it. What a difference that comma makes. No, price too high. Or no price too high. The same thing I think we see in verse 14. This is where we're at as a church. It's, it's, it's all hinging on one comma. Notice what we read right here in Acts chapter 21 in verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. We stopped trying to change his mind. We stopped trying to fight God's will. We ceased, comma, saying the will of the Lord be done. But if you take that comma out, I think that's where the church is today. We cease saying the will of the Lord be done. What a difference, huh? I pray we would never cease every day. Not my will, not his will, not their will. God, what's your will that we would never cease saying the will of the Lord be done?